Good afternoon, brothers and sisters, visitors and those joining us online, a hearty welcome to you all. It's such a blessing that we may be here in church again to worship our almighty God. May the preaching of the gospel direct our hearts and minds in faith and in trust to our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and cause us to live our lives to the praise of him. Consistory has the following announcements. You are reminded of the annual, annual general meeting scheduled for tomorrow evening at 8pm with coffee available from 7.30. This afternoon the worship service will be led by Reverend Vandelden, Emeritus Minister from our sister church in Mandajong and we welcome him to our pulpit. Before we commence the worship service, let's join our voices together and sing from Psalm 87 verse 1. Please rise if you're able. As we come into the presence of God, let us lift up our hearts unto the Lord. Brothers and sisters, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. The Lord God greets you, grace to you, and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Amen. Let's respond to God's greeting, singing from Psalm 147, stanzas 1 and 4.
With the Church of all times and places, let us now make profession of our holy, Catholic, and undoubted Christian faith with the words of the Nicene Creed, and then respond singing from hymn four, all four stanzas. Let each of you say with me in his heart, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he arose according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's now come before God in prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, with the Church of all ages, we have lifted up our voices and 
sang our praises to you, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we thank you that we may confess you to be our God and that we may be your people. Father, we thank you for establishing that intimate relationship with, with us, the, the covenant of your grace, the covenant of love, and knowing you, enjoying fellowship with you, being your people, having you as our God. That's the greatest joy of our life. It gives us the greatest pleasure, an everlasting pleasure, joy that will never cease. Father, by nature, we would be like so many in the world today. We would find our pleasure in material things, things of this world, things that are passing, things that will cease. But by your grace, you have made yourself known to us. And now that we have come to know you, Father, you, we have also come to, to love you. And we praise you for your great love, your boundless mercy, your infinite wisdom, your almighty power, and your holiness. We praise you for all that you are. And Father, we realize we can only have this intimate covenant relationship with you because you have given to us your Son to be our covenant mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that it would be impossible for you to have a relationship with us sinners simply as we were. It's impossible for you to have established your covenant with us again as covenant breakers. It's only possible because you have sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, not just to this world, but also to the cross, to bear the punishment that we should have borne, to render the loving obedience that we should have rendered. And we thank you, Father, that you regard us now as covenant keepers through our covenant mediator, Jesus Christ. And Father, now that you have established that relationship with us in Christ, we also acknowledge that we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can actually live in this intimate relationship with you. You command us to love you, to trust you, and to obey you. And we can only love you because the Holy Spirit has poured your love into our hearts so that we have come to know your love for us and and also we've come to respond with our love for you. And it's only because the Holy Spirit works in us that, that faith that we're able to trust you as we ought. And only because the Holy Spirit works in us powerfully, both to will and to work, that we are able to obey your commandments. And so our covenant relationship from our side depends totally upon the working of your Spirit in our lives. And we thank you for the working of the Spirit and for the foundational work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we praise you, our triune God, our God of the covenant. And you've not only established a relationship between ourselves and you personally, but also you've established a relationship with us corporately. We are together, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are the bride. We are 
the apple of his eye. We are the jewels in your crown, Lord God. And we thank you that we have this relationship with each other, that you've made us brothers and sisters of each other. And we thank you for the fellowship and the, the assistance and the help that we get from one another. And we pray that you'll continue to bless us in this bond of faith that we have with one another. And now, Father, we have come together to worship you, to once again listen to you speak to us, and we pray that your spirit may work through your servant so that what we hear is your words, not his, that we hear you speaking to us, and grant that your spirit also may open our minds and our hearts so that we understand and also receive the truths that we hear. And will you also help us, Father, to apply these truths once we leave here? Don't let it happen, Father, that what we hear goes in one ear and out the other, but help us to apply the words that we hear so that we're not just hearers of the word but doers of it, and help us to live out of your word daily. And, Father, we also pray that you will bless your word as it goes forth even to the frontiers of your kingdom the outposts, the mission posts, and we pray that you will bless that work and all who labor in it. It's often a very lonely and difficult task to perform. And Father, sometimes it's fraught with dangers as well. We pray that you will bless our missionaries in PNG and also, Father, all those who labor in it. We pray that you will bless the churches there too. And Father, as we Offer to you our songs and our offerings. Be glorified through it. And let our worship give you the praise and the honor which you alone are worthy of. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We open Holy Scripture this afternoon to two places, two of Paul's letters. First to the Romans, chapter 3, and then to James, chapter 2. We read this in connection with what we confess about the place of good works as the redeemed people of our God in Lord's Day 24. Romans 3, verses 21. We'll read to the end. Hear the word of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? 
yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And our second reading is from the letter of James, chapter 2. So in, in Romans chapter 3, we see that we are saved not by good works, but by faith alone. In James 3, we're going to see that faith without works is dead, and no one is saved without good works. We'll start reading in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. We'll also read a portion of our confession, our Belgian confession, Article 24. Article 24. You'll find that on page 538, uh, 508 rather. Article 24, which has as title, Our Sanctification and Good Works. And here we confess, we believe that this true faith, worked in man by the hearing of God's word and by the operation of the Holy Spirit, regenerates him and makes him a new man. It makes him live a new life and frees him from the slavery of sin. Therefore, it is not true that this justifying faith makes men, man, indifferent to living a good and holy life. On the contrary, without it, no one would ever do anything out of love for God, but only out of self-love or fear of being condemned. It is therefore impossible for this holy faith to be inactive in men, for we do not speak of an empty faith, but of what Scripture calls faith working through love. 
This faith induces man to apply himself to those works which God has commanded in his word. These works proceeding from the good root of faith are good and acceptable in the sight of God since they are all sanctified by his grace. Nevertheless, they do not count toward our justification. For through faith in Christ we are justified even before we do any good works. Otherwise, they could not be good any more than the fruit of a tree can be good unless the tree itself is good. Therefore, we do good works, but not for merit. For what could we merit? We are indebted to God rather than he to us for the good works we do, since it is he who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let us keep in mind what is written, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, Say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. Meanwhile, we do not deny that God rewards good works, but it is by his grace that he crowns his gifts. Furthermore, although we do good works, we do not base our salvation on them. We cannot do a single work that is not defiled by our flesh and does not deserve punishment. Even if we could show one good work, the remembrance of one sin is enough to make God reject it. We would then always be in doubt, tossed to and fro without any certainty, and our poor consciences would be constantly tormented if they did not rely on the merit of the death and passion of our Savior. So far, the reading of Holy Scripture and our confession. Let's sing together from Psalm 62, stanzas 4 and 7. This afternoon I may proclaim to you the word of God as the church confesses it in Lord's Day 24 of our Heidelberg Catechism. You'll find that page 538 in your book of praise.
Lord's Day 24. But why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of it? Because the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God, whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. But do our good works earn nothing, even though God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not earned. It is a gift of grace. Does this teaching not make people careless and wicked? No, it is impossible that those grafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. In response to the word of God, we will later sing from Psalm 86, stanzas 3 and 4. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the road conditions in Canada where I learned to drive are very different than those in Australia. In Canada, the winter roads can be very icy and a, and a car can easily lose traction on those icy roads and go into a skid. And I recall my driving instructor warning us repeatedly, if ever your vehicle goes into a skid, do not overreact. That's our natural inclination. As soon as the car starts going this way, then we frantically turn the wheel this way, or if it goes the other way, we, we frantically turn the wheel that way. But he emphasized the fact, don't overreact. Don't turn too much, don't turn too quickly, because if you do, your car will swing into another skid in the opposite direction and you could wind up in the other side of the road on the ditch. I had to think about that when I was preparing the sermon about good works. In a way, you could say that in the Great Reformation, prior to the Great Reformation, the church had lost its, its traction on the road of truth. And the church began to veer off to the left in a skid. And it was landing the church in the ditch, which might be called salvation through works. Thankfully, God provided the church with wise, godly men who gently steered the church out of the skid enable the church to find traction again on the road of truth. But there were some would-be reformers who overreacted, and they, they oversteered, and they sent the church into an opposite skid, landing the church into the ditch on the other side of the road, which we could call the ditch of salvation without good works. So on the one hand, you have the ditch of salvation through good works, and on the other side of the road, you've got salvation without good works. It's always a danger for the church to overreact when it meets with errors. And we're today still driving on the same road of truth, and today we also can overreact to errors. And we can easily send the church into a skid, if you will. 
And the danger today is not so much the Church of Rome. Today it's more Arminianism. And keeping the church on the road of truth requires us to react to Arminianism. But we have to be aware of the danger of not overreacting to Arminianism. That can happen if we place all our emphasis on justification through faith apart from works and putting all our emphasis on this salvation or justification through faith alone without works that we neglect also the importance of our sanctification through the Spirit and the, the certainty of good works. There is a danger that we stress so much that no one will be saved because of good works that we neglect the fact that no one will be saved without good works. There's always a danger that we stress so much what Christ does for us that we neglect to speak about what Christ does in us. Now, thankfully, we have a capable instructor in our Heidelberg Catechism. And if we follow it, it will keep us safely on the road of truth. And this afternoon, then, I preach to you the Word of God about good works. And this will be our theme. Those who are grafted into Christ produce good works, which are rewarded by grace, not merit. And we're going to see three things. First, good works are in no way meritorious. Secondly, good works are graciously rewarded. And thirdly, good works are certainly produced. So first of all, good works are in no way meritorious. In this question and answer of our Lord's Day, the Catechism asks, why can our good works not be a part of our righteousness before God? Or or at least a part of our righteousness. Why can't we, through our works, contribute a little bit to our, our salvation, our justification? And you'll notice by the question that the Catechism assumes that we can do good works. Listen to the question again. But why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of it? Is that correct? Can we do good works? Back in Lord's Day, back in question and answer eight, we asked the question, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good? And the answer is yes. We are so corrupt and we are totally unable to do any good works. One of the questions I love to ask pre-con students when they come before consistory is that question. Can you, today, can you do good works? And the students, they all know their catechism. No, they say. We are totally depraved. And Of course, if they answer that, then I feel sad because then I think my teaching has somehow failed. Because back in Lord's Day 8, there was a qualification put on that statement about our inability to do good, any good works. There was that little word, unless, attached to it. Listen to the whole answer. Are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good? Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. 
And so we confess that by nature we cannot do any good. We cannot do any saving good. But we also confess that if we have been regenerated, reborn, recreated by the Spirit of God, we not only can, but we will do good works. Regeneration makes good works possible and even certain. Now, the Catechism hasn't yet discussed the matter of regeneration, at least not directly. It won't do so until Lord's Day 33. So in a way, the Catechism is running it ahead of itself a little bit here. But in indirect ways, the Catechism has already spoken about this gracious work of regeneration. For example, in Lord's Day 16, we confess that one of the benefits of Christ's death is that our old nature, our old sinful nature, is crucified and put to death with Christ. And in Lord's Day 17, we confess that one of the benefits of Christ's resurrection is that we are raised with Christ to a new life. And if you know Lord's Day 33, you know that the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new nature are the two parts of regeneration. And furthermore, in Lord's Day 18, we, we speak about the ascended Lord Jesus Christ who sends the Holy Spirit to us by whose power we seek the things that are above. That is, we pursue heavenly things that pertain to the kingdom of God, that pertain to eternal life. And so the Catechism has already indirectly spoken about the miracle of regeneration. The miracle of regeneration that allows us and enables us to do good works which by nature we could never do. And so in light of what we have confessed already about this redeeming work of Christ, the question of this catechism is, is perfectly fitting and appropriate. Since our old nature has been crucified with Christ, because our new nature has come to life, and now that we through the Spirit are seeking the things that are above, now that we're able through the Spirit to do good works, why can't those good works that we, by the Spirit, can do, why can that, they not be a part of our righteousness before God? And the Catechism, of course, is, is asking this in light of the error of Rome. Now, some of the things that we confess are not so different than what Rome confessed. For example, Rome taught that God infuses grace into people who believe, and through the power of this infused grace, men are enabled to do good works. And, and that's kind of similar to, to what we confess, that we who are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we are given the ability to produce good works. But the major difference between Rome and the Reformed is that Rome taught that good works which are done through this infused grace merits the reward of eternal life. So what they've done is they've put sanctification in front of justification. Or if you want in terms of the catechism, they've put Lord's Day 24 in front of Lord's Day 23. And it's that error that our catechism rejects. And the catechism does so on the following scriptural basis. We read from Romans 3, and in verse 20, Paul says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And 
verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In Romans 4, verse 6, Paul speaks about the blessedness of the man to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And so the Bible is clear. Our righteousness is not based in any way upon our own good works of the law. Paul in Galatians 3 says that those who rely on the works of the law, those who rely on the works of the law for their righteousness or for their salvation are under a curse because they can't keep the law. He told the Galatians that no one will be justified by the law. They'll only be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And so scripture is, is very clear. Our works cannot justify us. Our works cannot make us righteous before God. Not in, in its entirety and not even in its part. And the catechism goes on to explain why. It's because God is perfectly holy. God cannot accept any work which is less than perfect. That's not how we as human beings operate, is it? We work on a different, different criteria. Because we are all imperfect, we accept imperfection from others. The young, young unmarried woman who's looking for a marriage partner, if she is looking for the perfect husband, she'll remain unmarried. She'll be a spinster all her life because there is no perfect man. The employer who wants the perfect employee will find he works alone because there is no such thing as a perfect employee. In the trade industry, there is some measure of imperfection that is allowable. We accept imperfection from each other because we ourselves are imperfect. But God is perfect. And anything less than 100% perfection is unacceptable to God. And you understand what that means, beloved? There is no way that you will ever be saved unless you have performed... 100% of God's law with 100% perfection. Some people think God is a gracious God in the sense that God will, will allow you to enter the kingdom of God if you, if you do your best, try your hardest. That's good enough for God. But they're wrong. God will accept nothing less than perfection. And that's why we need to rely on Jesus Christ who came to this earth as a man who rendered perfect obedience for us on our account as our representative. He rendered perfect obedience for us to the law of God. And, and we get through faith, we get to share in that righteousness of Christ. And so in, in Christ we are acceptable to God. When we stand before the judgment seat of God, and if God were to say, have you rendered perfect obedience to every one of my commandments? We can say, yes, with the qualification through Christ. Because we believe in Christ, his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness is imputed to us. And therefore God will accept us. But God cannot accept anything less than perfection. 
And if we were to measure our good works in the eyes of God, what could we say about our works? We could use the words of Isaiah the prophet, 64, 6, who said, all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. If you wanted to dress yourself up before you stand before God and you would go to your wardrobe and you would choose through your wardrobe and try to find the best garment that you have, if you were looking through your repertoire of good works for the very best work that you did, if you took it out, it would be like taking out this garment and you'd find, oh, there's a stain there and there's a rip down there. That's the same with our, our best works. Our best works are like polluted garments. It's impossible for us who are imperfect to produce a perfect work. Job said as much. He said, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is no one. Who, as an unclean person, can, can produce a clean work? Who, as an imperfect person, can produce a perfect work? It's impossible. And Paul himself laments that imperfection that he sees in his own life. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, in my sinful, corrupt nature. I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I don't do the good things that I want. I do the evil that I don't want. Now, if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, I cannot render, I cannot perform one work that is spotless, that is perfect. And as a result of that, we cannot merit anything from God. Our good works merit nothing. Nevertheless, they are graciously rewarded. And that's our second point. Our good works are graciously rewarded. And so the catechism goes on. Do our good works earn nothing, even though God promises to reward them in this life and in the life to come? And then the catechism answers beautifully. This reward is not earned. It is a gift of grace. And so the catechism has no doubt that our good works are rewarded. Scripture is so clear about this. Already in the old dispensation, in the book of the covenant in Deuteronomy, chapter 28, God declared to his people that they would be blessed if they would live in accordance with his commandments. God's obedience to God's commandments produces blessings already in this life. God said, all of these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. If you live a life of good works, these are the blessings you will experience. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock, and blessed will be your basket and your kneading bowl, and blessed you will be when you go out, and blessed you will be when you come in. And so the scripture says, when we live a life of good works in accordance with God's commandments, there are blessings that we will enjoy already in this life. David wrote about that in Psalm 19, when he spoke about the excellency of God's law. And he said in verse 11, in keeping God's commandment, there is great reward. 
in the context of the coming judgment, the great son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ, said, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each according to what he has done. Those who have done good will receive a reward. Those who have done evil will be liable to judgment. And Jesus said something in Revelation, uh, something similar in Revelation 22. He said, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. And again, the context is, the good will receive a reward. The, those who have done evil will receive a punishment. And the author of Hebrews said, in chapter 6, verse 10, he said, God is not so unjust as to overlook the work of love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. In other words, the author of Hebrews says, when you show kindness to one another and you do good works towards one another, God's not going to forget that. God will remember and God will repay. He will reward you. You're not laboring for nothing. You can also read a passage from 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul speaks about how people build their lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He says some build with precious metals and precious stones. Others build with wood and straw. So some of the things... Some do things that are good and acceptable in God's sight, and some do things that are not so good and acceptable in God's sight. And, God, and, and Paul says in the judgment, all the works of men will be tested by fire, and only those works which are good will remain. And so, in this, from all of the testimony of Scripture, we learn that not only are good works rewarded, but these good works will be distributed in different measure. While all believers will enjoy the bliss of heaven, some will enjoy greater rewards than others, depending on their works. Now, the moment you speak about rewards, people think about merit. We have a saying that in life you get nothing for nothing. In this world, you have to do something good to earn a reward. But that's not true with God. God rewards our works even though we haven't earned it. The reward of God is a gracious reward. It's undeserved. And why is it undeserved? Well, we already spoke about our best works being defiled with sin. So that when God holds up the best of our works, he'd really have to say, that's no good. It's imperfect. I can't reward that. But thankfully... As we confess in Lord's Day, in in Belgian Confession, Article 24, our good works are sanctified in Christ. That means our good works, as it were, are dipped in the blood of Christ, and what is sinful is removed from them, and what is left is just the good good work. And so through Christ, then, our works are sanctified, and, and they are rewarded. But there's another reason why our good works do not deserve or earn a reward, and that's because the good works that we do are not our own doing. We already confessed in previously that by nature we can't do anything good in God's eyes, in the sense of saving good. And so whatever good works we do, they are really God's work in us. 
The good works we do, they're not our good works, they're God's works in us. In Ephesians 2, Paul said that already in eternity, God prepared these good works that we do. One of my professors at college likened them to a pair of shoes that had been made by a cobbler. There's a cobbler who works and he fashions a pair of shoes and he gives them to a poor person who, who can't afford them. He's prepared those shoes for this poor person and all the person has to do is slip their foot into them. In a way, he says, that's what God has done for us. God has prepared in eternity the good works that we're going to do. That's marvelous, isn't it? You do something today only to realize that God had prepared that good work already in eternity. So all we do then is we step into these good works which God has prepared for us. All we do is we perform these good works through the power that the Spirit supplies. Paul said in Philippians 2, it is God who is at work in us both to will and to do or to work for God's good pleasure. God gives us both the willingness to do good things and he gives us the ability to do good things. Things that by nature we would never do. We'd be unwilling and we would be unable. And Jesus spoke about our natural inability to do good works when he said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you are not connected to me, you can do nothing good. It's only when we are connected to Christ through faith that we are in Christ and Christ is in us through the Spirit that we are able to, to do good fruits. And Paul, when he spoke about his labors, he acknowledged that the good things that he did, they weren't his works. He said, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And so on the one hand, Christ says, apart from me, you can do nothing. On the other hand, the regenerated Paul also speaks confidently and he says, I can do all things. And by that he means, I can do all things that God requires of me through Christ who strengthens me. Of ourselves, we can do nothing, but in Christ, we can do all things that God requires of us. And since the good works that we do are really God's work in us, how can we claim any credit? How can we say we earn anything by them? God receives all the credit for the good we do because he makes us willing and able to do it. Now, Rome was sure that this reformed doctrine of salvation through grace alone, apart from good works, was going to have a disastrous effect on the lives of God's people. Rome said that the reformed doctrine was going to make people live lives that were ungodly. This doctrine of salvation by faith, by grace alone, apart from good works, is going to make people lax and profane, lazy and worldly. People who will not do any good works. I mean, if Christ has done it for you, if he secured your salvation through his work, why would we want to work? And that's the, the third thing that we'll focus on. Good works are certainly produced. 
The Catechism asked the questions because of what Rome was saying. Does this teaching not make people careless and profane? And profane, pain, profane means to be ungodly. Doesn't this teaching make people ungodly, worldly, evil? And the Catechism answers in this way, it says no. And that no is emphatic. No. It is impossible for those who are grafted into Christ by true faith that they should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. The reformers knew full well that there would be some who falsely claimed to experience the grace of salvation, but who were not truly saved. The reformers knew that in the church there would be hypocrites, people who outwardly portray themselves to be Christians, but inwardly they are not. There might be some who in public they do what appears to be good, but whose hearts and whose lives are still in bondage to sin and to Satan. The reformers knew that there would be such people in the church. The reformers acknowledged also that those people who are in the church might become falsely secure by the reformed doctrine of salvation by grace apart from works. There would be some people who, who lived ungodly lives and they say, it doesn't matter what I do because I'm saved by grace through faith. Christ's works are going to save me and I don't have to do good works. The reformers knew that there would be such people in the church that would be lax and profane. And evidently, the apostle James confronted those kind of people in the churches to whom he wrote his letter. There were some who said, I believe I'm a man of faith or a woman of faith. I'm saved because of my faith in Jesus Christ. James wrote, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? James has written it so carefully. He says, what good is it if someone says that he has faith? And so by writing in that way, James already shows, he, he, rather he throws suspicion on the validity of that claim. They say they have faith but they don't have works. And then James asks really what is an astounding question that must have rocked the foundation of the church. He said, can that faith save him? Can that faith that doesn't have the works, can that faith save him? Now, on the one hand, we would say, well, if he has faith, that faith will save him. We are saved by faith, not because of works. But the implied answer of James is no. This faith, this faith that bears no good fruit, it will not save him. And then James goes on to explain why. He shows that, he shows how powerless is a profession of faith with the mouth when it is not accompanied by good works of the hand. And he gives the examples of acts of charity a, a person who says I believe in Jesus Christ I'm a, a born-again Christian I'm saved through faith in Jesus Christ but then he meets a poor person and while he says good words he says go home be warm be filled but he he doesn't do anything just words then Paul uh, James rather he asks to those 
words that are spoken, do they have any saving effect on the poor, homeless, hungry person? And of course, James says, not at all. Well, James says, just as those nice-sounding words don't help the homeless, hungry person, so is a nice-sounding profession of faith in Christ that has, so it has no saving effect on those who make this profession. That kind of faith is dead. And that's why that faith won't save him. His faith is not a true faith. It's not a living faith. True faith, the scripture says, always produces good works. And the reason is simple. The same spirit who works faith in the hearts of the elect also produces fruits in the lives, good fruits in the lives of the elect. The spirit will never justify someone without sanctifying them. Christ will not do something for you without him also doing something in you. And we need to stress this, beloved. True faith doesn't just justify us. True faith sanctifies us. Although we read it once before, maybe you'd like to just refer to it again, to the Belgian Confession, page 508. It says there, concerning sanctification and good works, we believe that this true faith worked in man by the hearing of God's word and by the operation of the Holy Spirit regenerates him and makes him a new man. If you believe, I'll stop right there for a moment, if you believe, if you truly believe, you are not that same old man with that same old nature, that same sinful nature. You are a new creation, the Bible says. And then it goes on, it says, this faith makes him live a new life. The born-again Christian who says, I believe, he won't continue living the old life of sin. He will live a new life. This faith makes him live a new life and frees him from the slavery of sin. Therefore, it is not true that this justifying faith makes men indifferent to living a good and holy life. On the contrary, without it, no one would ever do anything out of love for God, but only out of self-love or fear of being condemned. It is therefore impossible for this holy faith to be inactive in man. For we do not speak of an empty faith, but of what scripture calls faith working through love. This faith induces man to apply himself to those works which God has commanded in his word. This true living faith causes us, it induces us, it incites us, it activates us to do what God has commanded in his holy law. I said at the beginning, beloved, that at the time of the Reformation, there were some who overreacted to the teachings of Rome. They oversteered, and they sent the church into the opposite ditch, landing, avoiding maybe the, the ditch of salvation through good works, but they wound up in the ditch of salvation without good works. It's always the danger for us as Reformed people, as we struggle against and fight against Arminianism, there's always the danger that we place so much emphasis on what Christ did for us that we neglect the other aspect of what Christ does in us. 
The Catechism doesn't make that mistake. It'll always bring the two together. Our justification and sanctification are always a pair. What does it benefit you that you are baptized? And what does it mean that you are baptized? And it says, well, I am baptized with the blood of Christ. Right? There's your justification. But I'm also baptized with the spirit of Christ. There's your sanctification. And the Catechism will always bring both of those elements together. And so our Catechism, thankfully, will keep us on the path of doctrinal integrity if we continue to live and believe what our Catechism summarizes from God's Word. In Lord's Day 23, it stresses our faith justifies us apart from good work. In Lord's Day 24, it stresses that faith sanctifies us so that we will perform good works. Every person who is grafted into Christ by faith will certainly produce, will unfailingly produce good works. And I can even be so courageous, beloved, to say that if a person is truly grafted into Christ, he will produce much good works. Because that's what Jesus said. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. He who is a true disciple of Christ bears much good fruit. And so examine yourself, beloved, and see whether you are producing this abundance of, of good works. And if you are, then rejoice in the evidence of your salvation. Because if you can see the work of Christ in you, then you can be assured also of the work of Christ for you. For the work of justification cannot be separated from the work of sanctification. And the work of sanctification cannot be separated from the work of justification. Those two works of Christ, through his blood and through his spirit, are two inseparable parts of, of our salvation. But if there is anyone here this afternoon who is professing to be a Christian, but who is not bearing good fruits in your life, if you are still in your sin and under bondage to Satan, then the call comes to you to repent and bear fruits that befit genuine faith and repentance. Amen.
Let's give thanks to God. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we confess that you are a God perfectly holy, altogether pure. There is no taint of evil in you. And because you are so pure, you also can only accept us if we are altogether pure. We know that we are not in and of ourselves, Father, because of our fall into sin. Although you created us perfect, we ruined ourselves and we brought upon ourselves horrible depravity. But you and your grace, you have made us acceptable. And you did that, first of all, by sending your son, Jesus Christ, into this world as our legal representative to render that perfect obedience and love which we could not render. And we thank you, Father, that you have worked in us that true faith that makes us cling to Christ, knowing that we can only be accepted in him when we have his righteousness. Father, we are not deluded as so many. We know that you won't accept us just if we try our best. You cannot accept anything less than perfection, and we thank you that you have made it possible for us to be legally perfect through Jesus Christ, that his righteousness, his perfect obedience is imputed to us who believe, and that our salvation rests then on his perfect work. In him alone we are justified. At the same time, Father, you can't leave us in our sinful state. You can't have communion with us if we continue in that sinful state. And therefore, you in your good pleasure have promised not only to send Christ, but also the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, you are recreating us again into your image. You are in the process of making us perfect again. And Father, when we look into our lives and we see what you are doing, then we rejoice. There's still so much reason for sorrow. So many times when we think and say and desire and do things that are evil. And we know that we have only a small beginning of that perfection which, which is required. But we also take joy in the good fruits that we can bear because we know that you are a God who will perfect what you have begun in us. You will bring to completion the good work that you have begun in us. And we look forward, Father, to that day when we will be sanctified totally, when we will be made absolutely pure and sinless and spotless. The day when either we appear before Christ or Christ returns on the clouds of heaven. And then we will be a pure bride, spotless and unblemished in any way. Then we will achieve the perfection that we desire. In the meantime, Father, help us to fight against all sin. Make us hate sin. Give us the ability to overcome temptation when we face it. And help us, Father, to produce much good work so that we can glorify you and that others can glorify you when they see the works we do. And maybe even be one for Christ because of the good works we do. That they see that we are a changed people and they want to be they want to experience the same grace in their own lives. And in this way, Father, we pray that you will make us lights to the world around us, that they can see 
that we are different, not better by nature, but better through your redeeming grace. Father, will you be with us now as we go from here as church? Will you bless us in every aspect of our life, in our family, in our marriages, in our work, in our studies, everything that we do, Father, we need your blessing. And grant us that blessing as we leave from here. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You now have the opportunity to give your offerings to the Lord. The collection is taken for the mission work in Papua New Guinea. And after we have given our offerings to God, let's sing standing from Psalm 19, stanzas 3 and 5.
lift up your hearts to the Lord, receive his blessing and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.